we go. Good morning, good morning, everyone. How are you doing today? Nice. That's a couple of good people. That's good. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Um, I don't know about many of you guys, but I still feel like it's 2020. It doesn't feel like 2022. I'd prepared a sermon, 2020 vision, yay, but I had to throw that out the window. Um, but this time of year, it's uh, as we've just entered into this new season and new year, it's quite common for people to make resolutions, to make uh, vows or promises that they want to accomplish in the coming year, whether it be uh, to live a healthier lifestyle or to change certain characteristics and habits uh, to, to the necessary life-giving ones that we need to. Uh, now, before we dig into uh, the scripture that we're going to be talking about today, I just wanted to share a few of the New Year's resolutions that I found uh, people are trying this year. Uh, so this comes to you from the wonderful place of the internet. So here's the first one. Uh, my New Year's resolution is to help all of my friends gain 10 pounds so I look skinnier this year. It's helpful if you're interested in baking more. Um, here's another one. I will not bore my boss with the same excuses for being late this year. I will think of new ones. Um, or my favorite was the person who said they were going to quit most of their bad habits, but then realized nobody likes a quitter. So those, those resolutions may be a little facetious, but um, we can make some pretty ridiculous promises at times, too. Uh, we, can, we can make uh, some terrible vows even at points in hopes of living a healthier lifestyle, uh, and as we, as we look at the scripture this morning, we're going to be talking about the story of Jephthah, a man who uh, made some pretty bad decisions and even worse promises. Um, and as we walk through this particularly odd story in the Old Testament, uh, there's a few things we can learn from his mistakes. But uh, the point of what we're talking about this morning, I want us to understand just a little bit better, even in the midst of the most broken circumstances, that we can find hope in God for him to redeem, to make new, and to give life. That even when we think things are over or there is no more hope, that there is hope in God. Uh, so turn with me to Judges chapter 11. Uh, we're going to be reading the first 11 verses. Judges chapter 11. Or you can turn with me to the screen here behind. Starting at verse 1. Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. Also, just context here, his father's not the leader of this tribe. His name just happens to be Gilead here. Uh, and his mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You are not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. Sometime later, when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. And Jephthah said to them, didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're, fa when you're in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to him, nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites and you will be head over all us who live in Gilead. And Jephthah answered, suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? The elders of Gilead replied, the Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and commander over them. And he repeated his, all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. 
The, the book of Judges is uh, a collection of some of the weirdest stories in the Old Testament, in the Bible, really, uh, from the story of a man who had physical strength because of the length of his hair and the Spirit of God in him to a story where one of the tribes of Israel runs out of wives, so they have to go to this dance and steal women for them as wives. It's a very, very odd time in history. It's meant to be very uh, striking as we read these stories. Now, after, uh, just to give it a bit more context, after Moses led the Israelites out of the land of Egypt, uh, through the Red Sea, into the wilderness for 40 years, uh, Joshua succeeded him as their leader. So Joshua took the nation of Israel, led them into the promised land where they conquered all of the nations that were living there. And after this, uh, they were supposed to live under the law that God had given them through Moses. And so the, the tribe of Levi uh, was set apart as the priests and they were to be the rulers for the people. They were to be the ones who judged and told the people what was right and wrong and lead in, in God's law, all that he commanded. Now, this nation would, would bring justice and righteousness into the world. They had God's own law, but they had God with them. What could go wrong? Um, but as human nature shows, we tend not to do the things we think or even know are good and right. And so the nation of Israel started to adopt the practices of the nations that they were surrounded by. And instead of worshiping Yahweh, the one true God, they turned to idols like Baal, and which was basically just this pagan shrine. It was just a, a stones and wood. There was no actual power to it. And the way that they worshiped Baal was engaging in acts of prostitution and human sacrifices. So it was, it was a brutal time in history. We're, we're meant to realize how horrible it was at this point in time. Not only had, had Israel completely abandoned their God and the law that he'd given them, but they did so again and again and again, even after God forgave their faithlessness. If you, if you read through the book of Judges in one sitting, it, it's kind of this depressing book where uh, Israel is saved by uh, a leader. God raises up someone who uh, works in incredible ways through God's miracles and the land lives in peace for a certain amount of years, and then it comes back to this depressing line, again, Israel sinned in the eyes of God. It's also important to note that, again, Israel sinned in the eyes of God. They were so broken, they didn't even recognize their own actions as sinful. It was only in the eyes of God that it was actual sin. So what did God do in, in this case? What could he have done as as Paul puts it in Romans chapter 1, because the same thing happens to us today, God gave them over to their sinful desires of their hearts because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator himself. So just like the people during the times of the judges, um, sometimes the only way for God to get through to us is to let us suffer under the effects of what we desire or to, to hand us over to the things that we desire in a way. So God says to the person who longs for money, I'm going to let money rule over your life. Your heart's desire, your thoughts will all be turned towards this God in your life. Um, if, you, if you want to live for popularity instead of God, then your desire will, to be admired by everyone will, will supersede every other desire in your life. It'll be your driving force in life. If you want to worship gods other than Yahweh, he says, go ahead, 
Let's see how merciful they are. When you are in need and in help, what can they do for you? Nothing. But sometimes God allows us to feel the weight of of what we desire in order for us to see and truly recognize that he is the only good thing, that he is the only one that can save and redeem us. So in Judges chapter 10, in verse 7, uh, the, the, it, 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 sorry, it says that God sold them into the hands of their enemies. Now, if we're just reading this along as one story, we might not pick up on that, but the language of God selling his own people off to a foreign nation is quite strong here. It's meant to be, again, this stark reality. Um, you can think of it just like, uh, for instance, if you, if you own a car, it's your car to do with what you want. It's your own possession. But as soon as you sell your car to someone else, it's their possession to do whatever they please with it. You don't have control over that vehicle anymore. You can't push the presets in the seat settings or the mirrors. It's not yours anymore. Now, it doesn't mean that God abandoned his people. His love was still for them, but he, he gave them over to what they were desires in ways he let them be ruled by those things even. So Israel became like the nations around them. They, they started worshiping Baal and they started to suffer under the effects and of the pain of human sacrifice and prostitution that ravaged them as a people. And when they cried out to Baal to heal their pain and save them, nothing happened because he wasn't a real God. It was only when they realized that their idols could not save them that they actually turned back to God, that they cried out for him. And in this story, it's kind of interesting because Israel comes back to God and they, they say, we're sorry, we recognize that we've turned our backs on you and we repent. And God does, doesn't respond well at first or in their favor, rather. He basically says, you know, I helped you escape from your enemies in the past and I've saved you time and time again, but you constantly go back to your idols. Time and time again, you've turned your back on me, and so now I'm going to let your own gods save you. God let them suffer under their enemies because they didn't want God. They only wanted his help. And I think that we can still do this today. We, we cry out to be saved not because we feel remorse for our actions, but because we want his help. We... we Maybe in other words, we feel sorry for the consequences of our actions. We don't actually feel regret for what we've done. So what's the remedy for this? If we're being ruled by the things that our desires are for that aren't God, and, and what comes along is true repentance, is what Jesus preaches. A true sorrow for our actions, not just the consequences of our actions. So Israel, after this, eventually turned, changed their mind and repented. All repent means to do is to change your direction. If you're going one way, to change your course. And, and so before God helped them, before God saved them out of the hands of their enemies, they destroyed their idols. They turned their backs on the, the idols that they were serving. They turned to God. They truly repented. And so God saved them. Now, perhaps for some of us, this is a good reminder that if we're facing difficulties, they might be the outcome of our turning to things other than God to give us peace and love and joy in life. Now, if, if you're recognizing that is you, that's not a hopeless place. Don't think it's beyond the grasp of God's love. It's actually a place of great joy, knowing that God 
can even help us when our hearts lack the desire to seek him, that he can turn what's made of stone back into flesh, that even when we turn our backs on him, that when we worship other things, he's merciful and loving enough to draw us back into repentance. Now, the hope is that we don't have to suffer under the weight of serving idols before we get drawn back to him. But even if we don't, God's love is with us in the midst of our growing pains. So this is where the story of Jephthah begins. It begins with a ruined Israel having gone through the cycle of um, success, coming back to peace, and then failure again and again and again. The hundredth time uh, under their persecution of their enemies, they call out to God again to save them, to raise it, but judge and lead them. Now, uh, as, as we just read, Jephthah had a pretty rough upbringing. He was born, uh, it says that his mother was a prostitute, and because of his father's mistakes, he was kicked out of his own hometown, not because of anything he had done. Uh, so, and I, I, they drove him out of his hometown, but I love the way the NIV translation puts it, that he surrounded himself with a gang of scoundrels. We need to bring that word back a little more. Now, these weren't just some kids who liked to play pranks and stuff like that. The, the idea we're supposed to catch on here is that they were more like bandits or if, like the romanticized pirates. Uh, they, were, they were likely those who would uh, attack people as they were traveling between cities, collect their resources. Uh, sometimes they might even go on raids against their enemies uh, in order to survive and gain power. Uh, but typically they weren't the type of people you'd want to meet as you were going anywhere, really. Yet, this was the man that God raised up to be the savior for Israel. He, he wasn't trained as a leader under any king, any royalty. He didn't have any university degree in military strategy. He barely had a family at this point. But it wasn't his qualifications that enabled him to lead God's people, to be their savior. Because in the world's eyes, we look at people who have gone to Harvard as successful, people who were raised with a healthy family or, or who don't even at the very least have a, a criminal history, and Jephthah had none of these, none of these things that we might expect him to as a good leader in this world. And yet the elders of his own hometown asked him to lead them. You see, it wasn't that Jephthah became a great leader in spite of the suffering and the rejection that he faced in his life. He was qualified to lead because of those things, because of the, the difficulties that he'd faced in his life. So my question is, what are your qualifications? Not in the world's eyes, because things like power, wealth, and status are what rule here, but in God's eyes, what are your qualifications? God doesn't use the power, wealth, and status of Jephthah in order to save his own people. He used his pain. He used his brokenness. He used his, his terrible upbringing to enable him to lead. Sometimes the things that we overwrite in our own lives are the things that God wants to use in us. Moses, a man who God used to speak to millions of people, had a stutter and he hated speaking in front of people. David was trained to take care of sheep for his life, not to lead the nation of Israel. So what parts of your life have you written off that God wants to use and redeem? Or what pain in your life can God redeem in order to bless the world if we're, allow, if we're willing to allow him to do that? 
Our God isn't one who just takes our successes and uses those for great things in our lives. He redeems our worst mistakes, our brokenness and the pain in order for us to know that he can truly redeem anything for good. Some of the worst pains in your life might be your greatest qualifications if you let God work through them. Now, coming back to the story, the leaders of Gilead asked Jephthah, this man, to become their leader after the Ammonites threatened to invade the land. And so the first thing that Jephthah does after coming to power, uh, right after the section we just read, is he sends a message to the king of Ammon, hopefully, uh, or in the hopes to avoid war, to make peace, so that they didn't have to sacrifice needless lives. Uh, he, he appears to be kind of this very wise leader, even right off the bat, uh, but in the midst of it, he actually makes a horrible, horrible mistake and promise. So we'll pick the story back up at Judges 11, starting at verse 28, if you want to follow along. Judges chapter 11, verse 28. The king of Ammon, however, paid no attention to the message Jephthah sent him. Then the spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah and Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. It's looking good so far. And then Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from uh, the from Aurora to the vicinity of Mineth, as far as Abel Karamim. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of timbrels? She was an only child. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh no, my daughter, you have brought me down and I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. It's also interesting to note that recognizing his sin, the first thing he does is try and blame it on her. What have you done? Before Jephthah made this horrible vow, it says that he was filled with God's spirit in order to lead the nation of Israel through the lands in order to fight their enemies. And here we see that the spirit of God is in him and fills him to do something incredible and usually that's what we see happen in the Old Testament whenever someone is given the Spirit of God to accomplish things or to go out before him and rule, whatever it might be. They did some pretty incredible things. But here we see Jephthah doubt God's ability to work. We see that one of the first things he does is, is think that God can't save them. So he makes a promise to God. He tries getting God to be on his side by saying that if God was willing to give him victory over their enemies, then he would again make the sacrifice, the first thing that comes out of his house. Now, I, I want us to understand that being filled with God's spirit does not mean that people are incapable of evil. Good people can make bad decisions and bad people can make very good decisions at times too. It's, it's difficult to live in a world where we'd rather write things off as black and white because it's much easier to judge people and label them then instead of loving them, but it's hard when we come to stories like this where there's a man who's filled with God's spirit and yet makes a horrible mistake like this. So uh, we're going to look at why he promised this and unpack that a little bit, but before we get there, I want to I actually make it clear what he was promising, because as I was reading through uh, different scholars' opinions of this story, 
uh, there, were, there were a decent amount of people that tried to work around the fact that he'd actually made or sacrificed his daughter. Uh, and I'll explain why in a little bit, but uh, some people even said that, or some scholars said that Jephthah was actually promising to make an animal sacrifice, that he wasn't intending it to be his daughter, that it was supposed to be something else. But that wouldn't really make sense because if his daughter was the first one to come through the door, then his vow would have no binding effect on her. It would be for whatever animal exits out of the house next. Um, other scholars have proposed that Jephthah's vow was only one of perpetual virginity for his daughter, that she could never marry, that she would be dedicated to the Lord. Uh, but in the story, his daughter goes away for two months to mourn with her friends, and it wouldn't make sense that she would require a two-month reprieve before her sentence is carried out unless it were actual death for her. But in this case, Jephthah was filled with the Spirit and made a vow, and, and sorry, and still vowed to make a human sacrifice. Why would he do this? Jephthah would have known the law. He would have known that God saw human sacrifice as an abomination and was revolting. So why did he do this? I think there's a couple reasons. Now, during the time of Judges, like I explained, it was a very brutal period of history. There was not much uh, that was going on in the world that we would deem right or good, even. Uh, the Midianites, the Philistines, and the Ammonites were the main oppressors of Israel in this book. And they, they ruled over Israel as very brutal and violent people. Uh, in, in worshiping their gods, like I said, Baal, uh, they, they would sacrifice their own children by throwing them into fire. It was a horrible religion. So when the Israelites were conquered by these people, they, they became accustomed to these practices around them. They saw people sacrifice their own children, and soon they became desensitized to these horrors around them. So Jephthah, he was surrounded by all of these evil practices of the invading nations, and it was hard for him to see straight. And I think that we at times fall into that same trap. We can become desensitized to the evil around us, and it, it creates blind spots in our lives. Truths we cannot understand or grasp because the darkness of the sin around us darkens the truth. So what are our blind spots then? If, if like Jephthah, he was living in a culture that was evil and he was blind to the things that he didn't recognize, what are we blind to? In what ways have we adopted the practices of the world around us instead of holding on to what we know is truth? Do we, do we love God and others or have we given into the trap that selfishness makes, or, or that selfishness and comfort seeking is the highest good? It's a pretty common one in North America. But what I want us to understand is that Jephthah made this promise because he was desensitized to the evils around him. He'd become accustomed to them. And when we come to the New Testament, this is why Paul speaks these words in the book of Romans. And he tells us to no longer be conformed to the patterns of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And then we can test and approve what God's will is. We will know what truth is. We won't be blind to our sin anymore. So the second reason that, or sorry, the first reason Jephthah made this promise, made this vow, was because of the evil that he was surrounded by, that he was blinded to. I think the second reason he also made this promise was because he was, he was influenced by the religions, the pagan morality that was around him. Uh, now, just like the people, the religions of that time were very cruel, 
and they expected a lot of their followers. So if you were someone who followed Baal, if you worshipped him, uh, the basic principle of their belief was that if you do something to please this God, he'll do something for you. Uh, it, it, was a, it was a works-based righteousness or works-based um, appeasement of your God. So you sacrifice your child to your God, and he will give you blessing of rain over your crops for the coming year. Um, now, when we hear those things, we're like, that's ridiculous and a little bit silly uh, because we're so smart living in our modern-day society. But our blind spots are the same. They're just as ridiculous, but we just don't see them because there are blind spots. We can make promises to God. I'll, I'll read my Bible every day if you help me with my math homework or fix my marriage, anywhere in between those two. And we, we treat God like he's a vending machine at points. We, we perhaps do the right things, but with the wrong intentions. God doesn't need us to do things for him in order for him to love us. That's not who our God is. In fact, it says that in Isaiah 64, even our righteous acts are like filthy rags to him. I was thinking as I was preparing for this, it's like you know, your garbage can when a Kleenex falls out the top because it's so filled up, you kind of just pick it up with your couple fingers so you don't get your hands dirty. That's how he sees our righteous acts. That's how he sees our best intentions. We can't do anything for God we cannot offer him anything that he does not already have. But do you see that that's the beautiful thing about it? He doesn't want what we can do for him. He wants us. He wants relationship with us. He wants us to know him, to become more like him as we walk hand in hand with him through life. His desire is for us to come to him like a child goes to their father in need of help and direction. He wants us to run to his arms like the child does to their mother in need of, of soothing and comfort. And Jephthah lost sight of that. He, in the midst of the evil around him, forgot that God was loving and gracious and good. That He was a merciful father. Nothing has changed about the way the enemy works. In Jephthah's day, it got him to, or it blinded him to the realities of who God is. And that's still his main tactic to get us to believe that God still doesn't truly love us. This was the same at the very beginning uh, of the world. It's what Satan did with Adam and Eve. He got them to believe that God didn't have their best interest in mind. And when we fall into that same trap today, we act as though we have to earn God's favor and love. We act like it's a works-based relationship. Jephthah did this. It's why he kept his horrible vow even after he was given victory because he didn't believe that God would still accept him if he didn't uphold his end of the promise. Because again, Jephthah knew the law. He knew that sacrificing your own child was just as much breaking the law as it was to go back on a promise or a vow that you've made to God. It would have been the same for him to repent of either one, but he still went through with it. Sometimes we can think that God's strength perhaps is too small or too insignificant to make change in our lives, or even that his mercy is too small to care for something so broken. But we lose sight of truth when we think like that. Because the darkness in this world can cloud our judgment, can cloud the reality of who God is. God didn't make the greatest sacrifice in this entire world for you to sit here and believe that he doesn't like you, that he harbors some mild resentment for you or a grudge against you. 
The truth is that God sacrificed something so dear to him because he loved us so much. Jesus didn't condemn, or he didn't come to condemn our sin, to point it out in our lives, to make us feel bad. He did it because we couldn't uphold the promise to him that we were supposed to. He came to save us because he desires relationship with us, not what we can do for him. So we fall into the same trap as Jephthah and make bad decisions. We make bad promises, bad decisions when we lose sight of the love God has for us. Now, the story of Jephthah ends with him sacrificing his daughter, and uh, he leads Israel for another six years after he dies. It's not really a great end to the story, right? But when we come to the New Testament, when we read uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32, it says this, I do not have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the other prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised. If you read the rest of chapter 11 in Hebrews, it talks about these people of great faith, these people who had followed God and had done incredible things. They had administered justice, they had conquered kingdoms, they had gained what was promised. And yet we see Jephthah listed among them. We, we see someone who made a horrible vow and kept to it even when he shouldn't have. But look at who else was described in that list as having faith, administering justice, and overcoming kingdoms. Gideon, a man who constantly doubted and asked God for proof. Samson, a man who lived for his lusts and his desires. David, who killed his friend and slept with his wife. Jephthah, who sacrificed his own daughter just because he wanted to uphold a bad vow. Now, don't get me wrong. All of these actions were horrible. All of these were terrible errors that saddened God beyond what we can understand here on this world. But it didn't disqualify them from God's love for them. Each of these people were listed for having faith amidst their mistakes. There was no person who has acted completely faithful without making any mistakes. And thank God for sending his son to do what we could not. We have hope that God can redeem our worst mistakes because he sent Jesus to pay the price for them, to do what we could not. Our hope and our trust isn't in ourselves being righteous, isn't picking ourselves up by our own bootstraps, but to find our righteousness in Jesus because of what he's done to know that we are fully loved, that no mistake, no brokenness, no thing done by other people to us can take away his love for us. So wherever you are today, whether you're in the midst of perhaps your own mess, perhaps a mess made by someone else, or you're just dealing with the effects of the brokenness of this world, there is hope for God to work and redeem and make new. He offers redemption freely. And this morning, we are going to celebrate and remember the fact that he's offered us uh, true life through his son's sacrifice. So I'll invite the servers to come on up at this time. As Jesus was eating his last meal before being crucified, he gave a great promise to his disciples. And so he took some of the bread that they were eating in front of them and he gave thanks for it and passed it out to the people around him and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. 
And after this, he took the cup of wine that was in front of him and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. God welcomes us freely to his table to come and eat and drink with him. The, imagine, the, the unimaginably great love that he has for us is seen as we participate and celebrate together. His love for us endures forever and his goodness to us is great and we can freely accept the sacrifice that he made for us. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for Thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for coming into this broken world to redeem it, not to condemn us in it. Father, we thank you for the great hope and joy that we can have knowing that you will redeem even the most broken of things in this world. God, that we can have true joy knowing you are in control, that you love us and that you are good. I pray that as we partake in communion together that you would help us to tangibly understand that a little bit better this morning. Father, you are good to us, and we thank you for all that you've done. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Feel free to come up as an individual or uh, one person on behalf of your family as well to receive the elements.